Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today we're talking about the science of snacks as well as the famed Chili's Chicken Crispers. Woo! We'll also talk to Dallas restaurateur Greg Katz about his latest projects as well as his favorite Jewish food traditions. And then we'll take your listener questions about French food and Sonoran hot dogs. It all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food, like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make-every-recipe-in-the-cookbook foodie or a my-favorite-recipe-is-reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. Be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food after this for information on our show. We also want to hear about your favorite dishes and restaurants, so please share with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking with Dallas restaurateur Greg Katz, but right now I'm joined by food writers Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Baller to talk about what's trending. So, guys, Sarah. Yeah, you- yes. <laughs> Reporting for duty. <laughs> you wrote a series of stories recently about the Chili's Chicken Crispers. I'm so delighted. It was my favorite story to edit all week because (laughs) I think the word crisper or crispy or something was in there maybe 80 times. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) That's a favorite word. Possibly more. (laughs) And one of the dishes is called crispy chicken crispers. I know. That's basically the same word three times. It is. Yeah, so here's what happened. Chili's, which is headquartered in Dallas, removed the original chicken crispers from the menus everywhere. Now, people of a certain age, including me, mm-hmm. geriatric millennials, if you will, but also people a little bit older, Gen a little Xers. bit younger. Yep. Yeah, remember that since the early 90s, these were the chicken crispers at Chili's. And they're tempura battered, so they're soft on the outside. They're not crunchy crispy on the outside like the newer, more popular chicken crispy crisper renos that's not the word um that chili's now has so chili's says that 80 percent of their tendies came from the newer chicken crisper so they got rid of the one of my childhood and i thought there was a news moment here and i was right because i told twitter about it and like people exploded and reddit was already having a hard time there's a whole reddit thread about how upset people are that they thought the original chicken crispers were gone and then i confirmed it and then it was like oh no so Really, Twitter was a beautiful place on Thursday and Friday for people in mourning. Yeah. Um, there were so many feelings. And so after I wrote this news story and the Today Show picked it up, then I wrote a reaction story the next day about just how people were feeling. You know, one guy called it the worst day of his life. Yep. <laughs> Words like devastating. It was just, um, it hit really hard for yeah. those of us of a certain age. And for anybody who hasn't had the original chicken crispers, first of all, you can't now, so I'm sorry. But it was chicken tenders with a corn on the cob, fries and honey mustard some people would sub in gravy which I do think was a good choice but it was it was honey mustard all the way for me and now those are gone so day or month of mourning Mm -hmm. for the original chicken crispers and Erin I'm delighted that you loved these stories because I possibly loved them more yes and I feel like Chili's started the whole 
chicken tender with those things. Yeah. You know, and the honey mustard side. I don't really remember having that combo before uh-huh. Chili's kind of started that. And, and then so it became quintessential kid food. Exactly. Was this, were they on the kids menu or no? Like No, because they're warmer. massive. They're like, okay. it is like a huge dish. I mean, I feel like on people's tombstones now, it's going to be like, she loved the original chicken crispers. <laughs> yes. this, is, this is a moment in time, you guys. And the crispy, crispier ones are not the same. They're not the same. Um, some people have come out on Twitter to say that they do like them as well, mm-hmm. which was not popular among the OGs. <laughs> but, you know, I can't speak. I haven't had the, the newer ones yet because I was original chicken crispers person. But now we all need to take a trip back to Chili's, even though half of Twitter says they're boycotting the place altogether. Oh, wow. Give them a shot. That's maybe, very dramatic. Maybe the crispity, crunchity chicken crisperino cappuccinos <laughs> are really good. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So speaking of crispy, crunchy stuff, I discovered a new show on Netflix that I think you guys will like. It's called Snack versus Chef. Okay. And I know a lot of these like Netflix food shows are mostly kind of lame, but I feel like this show really dives into the science. There's a lot of depth to it. And so it's a bunch of professional chefs competing for, I think, like 50 grand or something, but they have to recreate popular snacks. Oh, basically like Trader Joe's does every day. Yes. Well, but this is like, like this by is hand. kind of a sick burn. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so it, it sounds like they took Bon Appetit's uh, Claire Soffitt's kind of. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. She would like recreate Oreos and Cheetos yep. and things like that in a very sciencey, y way. I wonder if she's way. getting a cut, Claire. Probably not. Probably not. I would, I would not. think not. Okay. Yeah. The main judge, his name is Ali Buzari, and he is actually a culinary scientist. And I looked him up. He studied biochemistry at UT Austin. And he always has just really interesting feedback for the chefs when they're trying to recreate things. So the first episode, I think, was Cheetos, hot Cheetos. Oh, man. And it was so hard for them to get the crunch. Like this whole show is about the crunch. And it's very, very difficult, I think, for like chefs to get that by hand. Was the flaming Hot part also hard? I think the flavor, they were able to kind of get the flavor. That part was easier than getting the texture of the Cheeto. Mm-hmm. You know, Which everything we know. was like a bit soggy, Ugh. a bit too cornstarchy. Yeah, and if that's off, I mean, you're over. You, you know, yeah. everyone's like had like knockoff brands of things like that. And the same. usually yeah. it comes down to texture, I think, of right. things not being the same. Yeah. And it was just interesting to me that because these snacks are so heavily processed and machine made, how hard it could possibly be to recreate them by hand, like with just like a little fryer or something. Is, like, is it God telling us that we should just let the big guys do it? Maybe so. Or just not eat these things. Maybe. Oh, Claire. <laughs> also that. <laughs> like maybe if this is impossible to make by hand, maybe you shouldn't be eating it. Right. Yeah. It was, it was interesting because also the, the Pringles episode was also funny because them trying to get the shape, which I learned is called the hyperbolic parabola. Mm, I kind of remember that from school. Geometry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hyperbolic parabola. And so them trying to like recreate the shape by hand was kind of hilarious. And I kind of also like the show because not everyone succeeds. (laughs) You know, like most other shows, it's like, oh, I could never do that because this person's so amazing and makes you feel like uh, I suck in the kitchen. But watching like professional chefs recreate these things and like really fail badly A good TV fail is delicious. Yes. And it was really good. But sometimes there are some really interesting. They also come up with their own snacks. And some of them have come up with some really interesting ones. But it was really about the science of snacking. Like, what is a good snack? You know, the crunch. You know, and someone created something that was like a rose shape. So it gets a lot more uh, surface area for dipping. And it was like, oh, look at the cling that this chip 
gets, you know, from the dip. And I was just like, oh, wow, this I is really I will totally diving. watch this, Erin. Yes. That's yeah. a great suggestion. Good TV rec. I, I just finished White Lotus. Not a food show. Well, no, it's no. not a food show. There food There's food involved? in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Claire, were you, with, without any spoilers, were you uh-huh. pleased with the way this great show ended second season? I was. Ooh. I was. It I, was not what I was expecting. And I had theories. Some of my theories were right. Oh. And some not. I can't wait to watch. I it's have no good. idea who's going to die, but I've, I've killed everyone in my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, Sarah, you had a really interesting story recently about the AT&T food hall. It was really fascinating and revealing, I think, about just the structure of these things and how people make money or how they don't make money. Yes, um, this was a business story, kind of a behind the scenes, how things work story, which are really fun to tell, but they have to be interesting for eaters, even if you haven't ever owned a business. Basically, the thrust of this story is that the AT&T Food Hall in downtown Dallas is a place the mayor eats several times a week. It is vibrant. It is beautiful. And the mix of restaurant owners is, in my opinion, really cool. So it's setting itself up to be this really wonderful place. Well, then a couple of months ago, I got wind that the tenants were just really struggling to make any money because there weren't enough customers down there and because they were promised AT&T employees that were then not in the office, like we're seeing so many places in major downtowns everywhere. So they were just counting on a lot more people to come. On top of that, their rent model is different than it is in other areas. So they give 18% of their sales back to AT&T. That's all their rent. That's everything that they pay to the company. But if you're not making very much money, you're giving away a lot of money because the, the business case behind it is you still have to pay your people and you still have to pay for food costs and both labor and food costs are going up right now. Right. And so I had a lot of AT&T tenants explain to me why they're just really concerned. And the concern is couched inside the idea that they love this place. So there's a lot of tension there, right? Like they want certainly to survive and make money, but also they like it. This is a place to feed people in downtown Dallas, both workers and tourists and people who live there. It should be interesting to see both with this food hall and with other food halls, how a winning business model can be created so that the person who owns it makes money, which is always the point. And so that the food hall tenants inside, you know, kind of these small business owners can also make a little bit of money. I like the original idea of the food hall. It seemed like they were almost trying to make it like a showcase of local food talent. You know, these are a lot of big local restaurateurs who have successful businesses. There's Easy Slider, Babushi, Monkey King, and they even had a Revolver Taco that left. I mean, I like the idea that we're really showcasing Dallas talent, but it concerns me that that model is not going to to work. Yeah, I think time will tell. There was a lot of reaction to the story, including a bunch of chefs off the record who came to me and said, gosh, I wanted to be in there, but I didn't think I could make the math work. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's hard for them to watch some of their friends struggling with that math that they tried to do themselves and realize, I don't know if I can make it work. But I think it goes uh, without saying, but I will, that the people who are there want it to succeed. And people like me, I work down the street. Like, I like to eat there too. Right. You know, so we would like to see this place succeed, but they need help from their landlord who's AT&T. Yep. One of the things people keep talking about is the parking issue. Mm -hmm. Where to park? Can they valet? And right now, during the week, it is pretty difficult to park before 5 p.m. You just kind of have to find a spot that's not on the AT&T campus. On Saturdays and Sundays and after 5 p.m., you can park in some of their garages. But one of the disappointments for someone who owns a restaurant on that campus called Hawthorne, this restaurant owner, Richard Ellman, had valet and they discontinued it. So, and he has since asked for it to come back because if you're coming to downtown Dallas after dark, you may not want to walk a couple of blocks for an upscale dinner 
whether because you can't or you don't want to. And so parking is an issue and it, it has been an issue from the beginning. Yeah, I kind of wonder if the downtown district is sort of depending on people to Uber everywhere. I think the argument can be made in so many other cities that there isn't parking and people figure it out. The trouble is Dallas is just not New York City. Yeah. So, I mean, so many people we know who live in New York City don't own a car and are just fine. Unfortunately, that argument doesn't work in downtown Dallas or doesn't work yet. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a yet thing. I mean, it's going to have to change, I think. Yeah. Um, we're looking at big growth already happening and going to continue to happen in downtown Dallas. Um, and the model doesn't work to have the amount of parking that people are accustomed to having. I mean, you look at every other major city and they're not as parking dependent as Dallas is. You also look at Dallas County's parking requirement for new buildings. It's a little antiquated compared to other cities. Uh, there's a pretty significant parking requirement in terms of how many spaces are required for new buildings. And that just kind of indicates that we are still a very car dependent city. It makes dining out in places like downtown tough. But I don't know. I don't know what the solution is to that. Well, if anybody's interested in the food hall story, you can find it at dallasnews.com slash food. It was a big deal for me to write. I talked to well over a dozen people about it and many more off the record. And I hope it gives you a glimpse inside just one of the things that restaurant owners and landlords deal with as they navigate that business and try to make money. Thanks, guys. Stick around. We're going to talk with Greg Katz and then we'll respond to some listener feedback. Central Market is really into food. Like, when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. We have a really special guest with us today. Greg Katz is a longtime Dallas restaurateur and the genius behind popular restaurants such as Beverly's and Clifton Club. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> I know that this is a super busy time of year for you, so I really appreciate you taking the time to sit and talk to us about it. So what is it like running a restaurant in December? Pretty insane. <laughs> um, you know, coming out of the last couple years, this particular holiday season people are super excited to get out and throw parties and celebrating and eating and drinking and just really having a good time. What are the kinds of things that people order when they're feeling especially celebratory in either of your restaurants? Lots of champagne. Yes. Lots of cocktails. Lots of latkes with caviar. <laughs> I really like the martinis at Beverly's. I like those all year, not just when it's a celebratory time, but um, those are good. So Greg, when you're running a busy restaurant and somebody's, you know, rented the back room and they're having a birthday party or a Christmas party, and then of course you've got two tables of eight people, then the restaurant is full of normal people just having dinner because it happens to be Saturday night. You're there for every minute of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's go time. This is what we've all been waiting for this year, just kind of people going back to the office, people traveling again, this specifically this year and right now. This is our time. You know, whenever I talk to people about where they like to go eat, it's like Beverly. Like, it seems like you have a really strong following and regulars. So how do you kind of accommodate your customers? Well, first of all, Beverly's turned into, it was kind of the vision always. You know, we were the first people to sort of redevelop Fitzhugh Avenue. We're surrounded by all these great neighborhoods everywhere from, you know, Knox to Turtle Creek to Uptown Downtown to M Streets. So Beverly's has turned into just this really awesome local neighborhood bistro that's pulling from all different neighborhoods. Right. Um, and my first boss was Dean Faring at the mansion. <laughs> and uh, 
we never said no to anything. Yeah. So, you know, we have flexibility. We have a great heated patio. So we have a private dining room. We have a big bar and sort of being this neighborhood local bistro. This is really the first restaurant that I've ever worked in that, um, I mean, five o'clock, five thirty, we're jammed. I mean, it is wow. full. You know, also people are cool about it. Like, hey, it's going to be 45 minutes. Have a drink. Or, hey, why don't you run over to Clifton Club, have a couple of martinis, we'll text you when your table's ready. So people kind of also know that as well. One thing I like about Beverly's is that there are moments of a Jewish deli, but it's an upscale bistro. That shows such flavor from how you grew up. So first of all, tell us about Bev, your mom. The restaurant is named after your mom, Beverly. And tell us about how you sort of weaved in some of the dishes that you ate with her, or maybe she makes these dishes. I would say almost everything on the menu, whether it's Jewish, Texan, French, is sort of inspired by something or an experience in my life. So Beverly's originally, I wanted to do this modern upscale Jewish deli, but Mm -hmm. just didn't think we were quite ready for that. And uh, (laughs) like Dallas wasn't ready for that. Yeah. yeah. And it just didn't quite pencil. And I was like, oh, yeah, wait, we got to sell alcohol. Like that's how we make money. (laughs) So. It kind of evolved into this really great, you know, New York bistro. My parents took me to New York for the first time, I think when I was about 19 or 20. Um, That was actually the first time I went to Balthazar, which has sort of been an inspiration for me. I wish somebody took me there when I was 19. Yeah, I was was blown away. It was before I even got in the restaurant business, kind of walked into this, you know, incredible French brasserie and, you know, in Soho and just I've sort of been addicted to it ever since. And I go multiple times a year to New York just to eat there. Um, I think maybe even you guys called us the uh, world's first French, Jewish, Texas brasserie. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how we, that's what we are. We kind of have these pillars. So I love New York, uh, grew up in Cape Town. Dean and the mansion was my first job. So a lot of kind of Southwestern in my blood, but I've always loved a New York neighborhood bistro. One of my favorite dishes and uh, something that's close to my heart is uh, the matzo ball soup. Um yeah. I remember my grandmothers in Cape Town and my mother and, you know, aunts and everyone making matzo ball soup. So uh, we put a lot of time and effort into our matzo ball soup. The biggest debate when we opened was, is it going to be a sinker or a floater? Is it big? Is it small? Is it, <laughs> is it hard or is it soft? So we kind of landed somewhere in the middle, but we spend about 24 hours making this delicious chicken stock. There's definitely some secret ingredients that I can't tell you about that are in there. And then, you know, we put a lot of herbs in there and it's really fragrant. It's sort of like when you take a sip of this and kind of goes down your body, you can you kind of feel it in your toes. It warms your whole body and just kind of puts a smile on your face. That sounds so delicious. I want some right now. I know. Yeah. Now, given that you're so busy around the holidays, do you get to celebrate Hanukkah either with your family or even at home or is there no home? There is not really a home this time of year. So um, as I said, I mean, it's just go time right now. We have in Little Beverly's, we have uh, almost 60 employees. Everyone's spending a lot of time there, especially this last week. You know, we're probably doing 14 hours a day right now. Um, Yeah, at Beverly's this last week, we have a private dining room that seats 30 people and has its own private bar. It was booked out. Every single, well, it's booked out the entire month of December. Um, (laughs) We're closed on Monday, so those are the only days it's not. But and on your day off, you came on the Eat Drink DFW podcast (laughs) because I love you guys. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. Yeah, (laughs) sorry. Yeah, I'm still in my pajamas, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so it's been, uh, yeah, yeah, this week has been every single day. We did a brunch and a dinner on on Saturday night, so it is just absolutely rocking. So we kind of celebrate um, a little bit at the restaurant, we were decorated. 
it just feels good inside. We have lots of lights. We have Christmas and, and Hanukkah. But to get back to your answer, I, we will try to spend a, uh, a family day um, with my parents and all my nieces and nephews and uh, basically have a nice dinner. What do you eat? We eat matzo ball soup for sure, brisket. We eat roasted chicken. But I guess the most significant, you know, we eat latkes, latkes for sure. Mm-hmm, so yeah. um, I kind of grew up eating uh, latkes with applesauce and sour cream. And then my grandmother, uh, we would do cinnamon and sugar, mix it and kind of dust them in there. And that's kind of the inspiration for our signature item at Beverly's, which is our, you know, latkes with caviar, creme fraiche, pickled chalice and chives. And sort of my grandmother and mother's original recipes at home is sort of what inspired that. So yeah, we'll, we'll light the menorah with the kids and, uh, just kind of, it's more of a family yeah. celebration, I guess. Now, when it comes to cooking, is Mama Bev in charge of all of it? Or do you get tasked with a certain thing? Is there anything you're not allowed to cook? Because someone in the family makes it better than Greg the chef? Well, first to start out, as long as I can remember, my dad has been very passionate about wine. He's been collecting wine since he was young. This goes back to Cape Town. And uh, my house was always celebratory house, friends, family, millions of people coming in and out all the time. Fun. from. But my dad is always grilling in South Africa. It's called a braai. Always outside, even if it's 30 degrees, he's got a jacket on and, you know, we're maybe smoking cigars, but uh, he's always grilling. My mom's always in the kitchen doing those other things. So uh, at this point in my life, I'm most of the time I'm pretty tired when I go over there. So <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't cook too much and uh, I let them kind of do it. And I, and I try to actually enjoy it. You know, in the restaurant business, we are kind of giving everything we can to make sure people are having a good time. So, you know, it's nice to have that. But I will definitely hit up our purveyors for some good caviar, some smoked fish, um, some nice prime steaks. So I'll uh, I'll make I'll make that happen. Yeah, it didn't occur to me until just now, Greg, that when it's finally time for you to eat your holiday meal, that maybe you're just too tired to help. I mean, that makes so much sense. Yeah, I'm ready to uh, kick back, sit on the couch, drink some wine, Let and then somebody else and, feed you, and then always take a nap in between. Of course, yeah, that's course. the dream. <laughs> and so, tell us a little bit more about South Africa, the flavors and things that you grew up around there. Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Durban and then grew up in Cape Town. Moved to Dallas when I was around 11. So I have a lot of great memories. And um, before I got in the restaurant business, would go back a lot and spend quite a bit of time there. Cape Town specifically and all of South Africa has such a bounty of seafood, meat, vegetables, fruits. So it's kind of this like awesome, you know, variety of different foods and flavors. And that kind of always just stuck with me. I, I didn't realize I had that until I got in the restaurant business and sort of started tapping into this stuff and would ask my mom like random questions. And like we had a plum tree in, in our house in Cape Town and mm. she would be like you would be just dis- you disappeared and we would find you climbing up the plum tree and then you would pick the plums and then try to sell them to us <laughs> so like, yeah. okay good yeah exactly um but then also like working for dean and kind of learning about the southwest and all those types of things um living in new york and just being really poor and just sort of eating street food everywhere also working in great great restaurants in new york all of the experiences um have kind of come together Greg, I want to say before we go that Clifton Club, your new cocktail bar, which is down the street from Beverly's and an easy walk between the two, it's one of my favorite places to grab a cocktail, um, either for a date night thing or we've taken friends there. I just really like the vibe in that place. And I'm 
I'm sort of mad at myself for saying it out loud because everybody listening is going to want to go there and now I won't be able to get a seat. (laughs) But in that vein, what is your one cocktail that when you sit down and you can relax just a little bit, what do you want to drink? Thanks. We, uh, we're loving Clifton Club. It's, it's turned into this incredible uh, little neighborhood cocktail lounge. Um, we have people walking from all over the neighborhood, people coming from all the different restaurants before and after. So it's been awesome. But for me, it depends on the weather a little bit. Um, I love great martinis. You know, I drink a lot of bourbon and scotch during the winter, tequila, gin in the summer. So it's, it's a little bit of a hard answer for me. But right now I'm drinking a lot of Manhattan's Old Fashioned's. I love all the classic New Orleans cocktails. So, you know, Vucarets and Sazeracs. I love all that stuff. So that's kind of what I'm drinking right now. Is everything. All of Is it. everything. <laughs> everything. Yeah. It's a good answer from a guy who owns a bar. <laughs> uh, stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, we'll take listener questions about French food and more. That's right after this. Hey, listeners. This is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com slash listen. Welcome back, everyone. We love to get feedback from our Eat Drink DFW listeners. It seriously makes my day when we get an email about a recent episode and all of your ideas. And you guys can keep emailing us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. And so we're going to read a few emails that we've received from listeners. One that I really loved was about our state fair foods tasting. So listener Lori Miller emailed us and said, y'all did a great job. I went to the fair yesterday and had the fried charcuterie because of you. I also tried the dilly dog, the dill pickle cored out with a beef hot dog in the center and all deep fried. (laughs) It sounded better than it was. Okay. So that was, she didn't like that one. And it doesn't sound very good. Yeah. (laughs) Claire, that's your opinion. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I'll take it. Then she says, on another note, I need your help. My absolute favorite fair food and the one I look forward to all year is the barbecue bologna sandwich on white Wonder Bread. It is perfect the way the white bread sticks to the meat and the only food I care about. Guess what? It wasn't there. They were always in the same place on the backside of the stadium down from the taffy place. On the counter, they had big pickles soaking in Kool-Aid and a pretty good-sized booth. They served other items, but I only have eyes for the bologna. Can you investigate what happened? And if they have a storefront, I'll drive anywhere for that sandwich. <laughs> and so... Such dedication. I just love it. I know. Yeah. I know. She's like, I'm in for anything help. And I'm like, you're the best customer ever. <laughs> exactly. Now I want to eat it too. Right? Does right? so yeah. it make you want to eat it? Yeah. So I sent this email to Sarah and Claire and I was like, you guys know anything about this? And Claire was like... I'll look into it. And so yeah. Claire, what did what did you find? I had never seen this at the fair. I didn't know anything about it. I reached out to our state fair contacts and they were like, yeah, we know what you're talking about. And the bad news is it's gone, <gasps> which was so sad. And I was like dreading letting her know that her favorite bologna sandwich was not <laughs> available anymore. But they told me, okay, so here's the backstory. It was a thing at the fair for a long time. It was sold by Little Bob's Barbecue. The owner of that was Huey Nash, and he was the first African-American vendor at the State Fair of Texas, and he opened in 1971. He passed away several years ago, and his sons and daughter continued to operate those booths. I think they had two at the State Fair. 
And they opted not to return in 2021 after the pandemic and then weren't there again in 2022. But the fair didn't really have any reasoning. They didn't quite know why, at least not that they told me. And so I did some digging online and found what could possibly be a cell phone number for one of the sons and called it and left a voicemail and just like crossing my fingers that I'd hear something back. And I did. He called me back and it was the son of Huey Nash. And he told me that, yes, they did leave the fair, but they're going to be back next year in 2023. They're going to have the bologna sandwich. And they did used to have a storefront in South Dallas that is not open anymore, but they're looking at possibly bringing that back too. But if anything, you will be able to get this barbecue bologna sandwich at the state fair in 2023, and it will be at the Little Bob's barbecue stand. That's fantastic. It's very exciting. And I'm excited to try it. You're like Daphne from (laughs) Scooby-Doo, tracking this stuff down. That is amazing. Yeah, this is a a point for the cold call. Oh, yeah. Right there. I wasn't feeling so good about a cold call. We make so many of them. So many. I got to wonder how many voicemails the journalists in this room have left on a stranger's voicemail. You know, like you hit the wrong one because they don't identify themselves at the front. And you're like, hello, I don't know if this is the right person, but I'm going to give it a shot. And then you give your spiel and they never call you back. And don't you think about like the times when you leave a cold call voicemail and it's like not the right person and they're just listening to a voicemail about bologna sandwiches and like what the hell is going on yeah there's always that fear um so that's the case of the missing bologna sandwich that is awesome good work and there's good news that it's coming back yeah so a lot of times yeah a lot of times we do have to be the deliverers of the bad news sometimes to people all the time Aaron. all the time (laughs) all the time probably more you sarah than if a restaurant (laughs) closes i'm your gal unfortunately another email we got was from kelly in Plano. She says, first of all, I thoroughly enjoy listening to your podcast each week. I find myself making comments out loud as if you can hear my recommendations. (laughs) Same. After listening to the podcast this morning, I have two thoughts to pass along. I spent last weekend in Tucson, Arizona, home of the Sonoran hot dog. Perhaps you've tasted one. Anyway, that was our first culinary stop, which did not disappoint. I suggest you add that to your hot dog conversation. And number two, while in Tucson, we ate at a fantastic hidden spot called the Coronet. I was very intrigued by their section of tinned fish. I grew up eating sardines and smoked oysters on crackers with my dad, so I was drawn to it. What a terrific choice. I had the smoked trout tin that came with a very small mixed green salad, slices of French bread, and whipped butter and a sweet pecan pepper. My question to you, are you aware of any restaurants in the area who are serving these? Claire, I'm going to kick this one to you since it's all Arizona related. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what about the Sonoran hot dog? What is a Sonoran hot dog and do we have any here? Okay, quick background. I am from Arizona, so hence Aaron (laughs) kicking this to me. But I have sad news here. I don't know of any place in Dallas serving a Sonoran hot dog. So if anyone listening does, please let me know. So a Sonoran hot dog, for those who don't know, it is a hot dog that is wrapped in bacon and served in a bolillo bun mm-hmm. and topped with a whole bunch of things. It's like it's a very decadent style of hot dog. It has um, pinto beans, onion, tomato, different types of condiments on top, sometimes mayo, um, sometimes mustard. Looking around, I saw a food truck that seems to sometimes operate around Dallas. I think it's called the Sonoran Queen. They do make them, but I couldn't find any information on when they have pop-ups or where they tend to be stationed. 
So I, I don't have great answers on that one. Yeah. But like I said, if anyone knows, please let us know at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. On the tinned fish question, the first place that popped to mind was... La Bodega. La Bodega. Thank La you. Bodega like, in La Bodega in Oak Cliff. That's true. Yes. Yeah, they La Bodega are, in Oak Cliff. Um, their menu has sardines heavily featured. They do it in multiple preparations on salads, and in, they have a sardine sandwich, which you don't see much of. Another Oak Cliff option, not exactly tinned fish, but Sketches of Spain has a lot of fish, including bocarones, which are white anchovies. They serve them with garlic and parsley. I'm not sure if they are presented with the tin. I don't know how important that <laughs> yeah, is, I don't, Kelly. I don't think. But... You should just really go to Oak Cliff is what it sounds like. It sounds like that is a hot spot for tin fish. But also, if you're looking to open a restaurant, maybe tin yeah. fish. <laughs> There's apparently a demand. Okay, so one listener that we hear from quite often, which I love, is um, Errol Kors. He emails us Aww. commenting on um, our cooking hacks, and he tries them out sometimes. So after we talked about the um, olive appetizers, and I said I was going to try air frying them, he emailed and said, Tried the air fryer blue cheese olive with crema and hot honey dip. And then he suggested another snack. He said a hack from his mom was a pineapple ring topped with low-fat cottage cheese and drizzle of Mike's hot honey. I feel like my mom ate that when I was a kid, like in the 70s, like with a tab on the side. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, without the hot honey. Also, shout out to the two uses of Mike's Hot Honey. I was going to say, I think yeah. that's the lesson here. In two is... different appetizers. And I will say, guys, I put the Mike's Hot Honey in my holiday gift basket, yes. which you can find on dallasnews.com slash food. But also, I've been to two favorite things parties this year, both hosted at my house because we're people who really like parties. And my favorite thing this year is Mike's Hot Honey. So it's nine or 10 bucks. It's really delicious. It was drizzled on top of the State Fair of Texas's award-winning dish, the fried charcuterie board. Mm -hmm. So if anybody needs like a very simple, you can buy it at the grocery store, stocking stuffer or gift, it is that $10 Mike's Hot Honey. And I will say at the first party, people, you know, it was one of those parties where you could steal if you liked somebody else's gift and people kept stealing the Mike's Hot Honey. Wow. Can I give a quick food tip? Yeah, sure. Okay, wait. Okay, so I love hot honey have for a long time. One of the things that I do when I make pizza at home, I take regular honey, put it in a bowl with a little bit of hot water, dilute it a little bit so it is drippable, Mm -hmm. softer consistency with red chili flakes. Let it sit all together for a little bit. And I brush that on my pizza crust after it comes out after Uh. I make it. Oh, Claire. Yeah. So anybody who doesn't have Mike's hot honey can just make it themselves. Yep. We all got chili flakes and honey. Hot tip. Literally. We recently received a question from listener Beth Holland about her Christmas tradition of serving country-themed meals each year. This year, she chose France as her culinary inspiration. Good choice, Beth. Can you tell us a little bit about your tradition and what dishes you are going to try to make this year? Well, every year we have a different country, and we learn about the traditions and what they do for Christmas and what kind of food that they make in that particular country And so this year, we're doing France, and we learned that they usually have on Christmas Eve around a seven-course menu. And what I'm doing this year is smoked salmon and foie gras as an appetizer on like a toasted baguette round. And our special cocktail is Cheer Royale. And then we'll have brie and puff pastry. And then our second course is going to be a scallop Saint-Jacques. Our third course will be a coca vent, and it will be I like Julia Child with a gratin of potatoes and green beans amadine. Our fourth course will be a cheese course, and we will have Caesar salad and about four different kinds of cheeses. Our 
fifth course, which I'm kind of excited about, since I have a sweet tooth, is a tradition from Provence of having 13 desserts, which represents Jesus and the 12 apostles, therefore 13. So we have everything from a Yule log to macaroons to dried fruit from Provence and chocolate truffles, 13 different desserts. So it's really more five this year. Wow. I almost just fell out of my chair. Our jaws are on the floor, Beth. <laughs> Beth, can you tell us why you do this? I mean, when, when everybody else is making prime rib and smoking ham, you don't do anything like that at all. Why? Well, it's because my family originally would spend Thanksgiving with us, and we would have the traditional turkey and dressing meal. But when they got married and their in-laws lived far away, they wanted to spend Christmas with them. So I started a tradition of having our Christmas early so that they could accommodate their travel plans. But the problem was coming up with something different to eat other than turkey and dressing. How boring is that? And also have it fun so that they would want to come back next year. So now about six weeks in advance, I send out an email to my family And we vote for the country we're going to celebrate that year. Now, what other countries have you done? Our very, very first one was Hawaii. And we had all the traditional foods. We even had flower lays. And I taught my grandchildren to do a hula. But the one (laughs) meal that they loved the most is the one we celebrated, uh, the Feast of the Seven Fish, which is from Italy. Mm They just remember the food being so incredible for that one. And so how many people do you do you feed? How many people are at your house for Christmas? Well, we have 13. Five of those are grandchildren from the ages of 2 to 11. The luckiest grandchildren in the whole I know. world. I know. Well, do they actually <laughs> eat the food? It's so hard to get kids to try new things. Well, that's going to be hard. My daughter-in-law is bringing the food she knows they will eat. <laughs> For sure, like little appetizers. One of them doesn't like cheese, and we have a lot of cheese. So we'll see. (laughs) So, Beth, do you actually make all of this stuff? My husband, I guess, is my servant. He's going to (laughs) smoke the salmon. (laughs) And um, most of the desserts I have bought. That's a relief. (laughs) Yes, but I will make the potatoes au gratin and the green beans and, and everything else. Yeah, one of the reasons, Beth, why you and I found one another is because you emailed me with a relatively short list, now I'm realizing, of things you still needed to source. So you emailed me and said, where do your favorite croissants come from? Who do you know who makes a wonderful quiche Lorraine? You know, where do you buy good smoked salmon in town? And so I thought this list that you sent me, Beth, was all of the things. And as it turns out, these were just the things left on your list that you needed a little bit of help with. Exactly. But I loved the idea. I mean, I think this is advice for everybody that you don't need to make the croissants in a five-course French Christmas dinner when there are several bakeries in town that make really, truly, almost world-class croissants. Buy their croissants, and then you can make the cocaman, which is certainly a task on its own, and leave the good stuff to the professionals. I think that's great advice. Well, thank you. I have found through you a bakery called Hot Sweet Patissiere on Arapaho, who's making the Yule Log and the macarons, and the Kate Weiser chocolate truffles, which are, by the way, beautiful to yes, look at. those are my favorite. And Scardello is doing all the French cheeses. TJ's Fish Market is where I'm buying the salmon and scallops. 
And just about everything else is coming from central market. That's awesome. I um, love how thoughtful you are about everything, even down to the little chocolates for the I'm, kids. That's I'm so obsessed sweet. with this whole thing. I think this is the coolest idea. And if I were your child or your grandchild, I would make sure that I was at your house every year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that was really the point of doing this. I wanted them to be excited about coming to our house and doing something different and different every year so that it wouldn't be boring. It sounds like you really have a nice meal. And if you would email me afterwards and tell me how it goes, I'd love to hear what everybody really liked to eat. Want some pictures. Yes. And yes, if you'd send some pictures, and we'd love to update our readers at Eat Drink DFW podcast, you know, about it. I think now we've got a whole bunch of people who are invested in you having a really wonderful dinner. <laughs> um, so thank you, Beth. And good luck. We are so impressed by you. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you having me on your podcast today. And I'll say Merry Christmas to everyone, or should I say Joy Noel? So, <laughs> I love it. Merry Christmas, Beth. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Beth. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your food thoughts, favorite restaurants, or tasty recipes with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Aaron Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Eat, Drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. <laughs>